The grass withers and the flower fades, but our God's word abides forever. And so it deserves our full attention and reverence. Let us give it as we read. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the Lord, that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception, for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask that he would bless our time in it this morning. Oh Lord, we are indeed blessed when we don't walk in the advice of the wicked or dwell with unrighteousness. We don't just acknowledge, accept, or agree with your word. Your word is our very delight. It is life to us, and so we meditate on it day and night. It feeds us, it nourishes us, and by it we are firmly rooted and established. By your word we are immovable, and so we ask that you would bless our time in that word that you would allow us to drink deeply of these life-giving waters and through it bear your fruit in due season so that we may not wither or be blown away like chaff, but watch over us and make us more like our righteous Savior through whom we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's just something about passages like this. Some people would just as soon ignore them. Uh, They find them scary and troubling and even divisive. Others, others just get excited. They want to know every little detail about the end times, the who, the what, the where, the when. And they see a passage like this and they just can't wait to dig in. But if we're honest, one of the reasons passages like this about end times draw such radically different responses is because they tend to be amazingly short on details. We want specifics. We expect specifics. 
And yet, think about what we heard last week in chapter 1. We have to ask, what do we do when God does not meet our expectations? Do we get mad at him, or do we have the maturity to question those expectations? Put it another way, what are the right questions as we come to a passage like this? They might be questions like, why are these passages so short on details? And why does God record them at all? What's the point? And what does he want us to take away from passages like this? I think if we learn to write, if we learn to ask the right questions, we will see these passages as an immense uh, encouragement to us as we face the future. And that's really what I think God wants us to do this morning. According to verse 2, someone was claiming to be an apostle and has written to the Thessalonians saying that Jesus Christ has already returned. Few things could be more discouraging to a Christian than this. Because Paul, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians and as we saw in chapter 1, has been telling them over and over again that when Jesus returns, he will set all things right. Paul has been relentless in setting uh, his hearers' eyes on that day for deliverance, for comfort. And so if Jesus has already returned, that means that things were already as good as they were ever going to get. And the reality was, in the town of Thessalonica, things were not that good. Can you imagine how crushing that would be? And Paul's going to address that. But it will also raise another danger that he has to address, that people within the church claiming authority will teach things contrary to God's word that there are false teachers and they are destructive and they will lead people away from the truth. And so Paul wants to address this, not just because whoever is claiming that Jesus has already returned, but because there is a false teacher coming, the false teacher, the, the great false teacher, whom he calls the man of lawlessness. And reminding his readers, his hearers, about the man of lawlessness will do two things. It will remind them first that there's no possible way that Jesus has already returned because the man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed. But it will also prepare and strengthen them. And it will prepare and strengthen us for when that man of lawlessness is revealed so that we might not be led astray by him. And so my my hope this morning as we look at this uh, section of God's word is to see this. Christians need to be prepared for the man of lawlessness who will lead many in the church away from the truth. Christians need to be prepared for him because he will lead many in the church away into false teaching. And so that's what we want to see uh, today. And first we want to start with, who is this man of lawlessness? He has many names in scripture. He is called the son of destruction in verse 3. He's called the antichrist in 1 John. Uh, he is called the false Christ by Jesus in Matthew 24. Uh, he is called Gog in Ezekiel and Revelation. Or simply here, uh, he's referred to as the man of lawlessness or the lawless one. 
He shows up in the book of Daniel. Uh, Jesus makes reference to him. Paul and John both talk about him, as does the book of Revelation. And I kind of like the name Man of Lawlessness because I can abbreviate it M-O-L, as it's in your sermon title, which sounds like mole, right? And uh, if you know anything about spy novels and things like that, a mole is someone who infiltrates a group so as be to betray that group, steal its secrets, and sow lies in their midst. It's destruction from the inside. And that's really what the man of lawlessness is. He is the mole to end all moles. In verse 4, it says that he takes his seat in the temple and he exalts himself. Now, I know that some have taken this to mean that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt and will become his base of operations. But if that's what Paul means here, it is the only place in his writings that he would use the word temple to refer to, to the physical structure in Jerusalem. Rather, what Paul usually means by temple is either our bodies as the dwelling of the Holy Spirit or the church that Christ is building as his temple that we saw uh, was uh, promised to David. Uh, we looked at that at Christmas in 2 Samuel 7. Historically, God's people have understood this reference to temple here to mean the church. Uh, and so the image is someone who will seek to destroy the church, not from outside, but from within. Someone who will gain unprecedented influence in the church. He may be a church leader. At the time of the Reformation, most Protestants were convinced that it was the Pope for that reason. Uh, Revelation 13 suggests that he may be a political leader who gains a following from within the church. I don't think the Bible answers that uh, definitively, whether it's a church leader or a political leader. What is clear is that he will take on a sort of messianic status. He will be seen as the hope and the salvation for God's people. He will be charismatic, and he will do signs and wonders, according to verse 9. And he will lead a great rebellion, verse 3, which is really better translated apostasy, uh, an abandoning of the faith. Many in the church will follow him, and in so doing, they will abandon following the Lord. They will abandon the truth. Now I say many, not all, because Jesus assured us in Matthew 24, he said, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, the elect. In other words, he's saying they will be so persuasive that even God's elect would fall away if that was possible, but it's not possible. And so Jesus is assuring his people that he will not lose one of his people. And so we're, and we're not left to wonder how this man of lawlessness will do this, because Paul told Timothy what would happen in the last days. He says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, the, the telltale marker of a false teacher is that he tells people what they want to hear. This is what Paul was warning us will happen. 
Now, there have been many anticipations of him throughout history. There have been many uh, enemies of the church inside and outside, whether that's Pharaoh and Haman uh, or, or Judas within the 12 apostles. And they've always preceded a great deliverance. And this is the pattern of Scripture. Over and over and over again, we see things devolving into darkness and chaos, and then things get really bad. Things in the Bible are always darkest before they get better. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying Jesus can't come back until things get really bad. And he's telling those in Thessalonica they're not there yet. The final Antichrist has to come. The great apostasy has to happen. And until they do, the last day can't come. And so how do we spot the man of lawlessness if, if we're still alive when he comes? I think there's two things, according to our text. And the first is arrogance. He's self-serving and self-exalting, as we see that in verse 4. He will exalt himself and and seat himself on a throne of sorts in the church. Humility is a mark of godliness. How could it not be? Jesus did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So leaders who love and serve Jesus, love and serve Jesus' people. They don't exalt themselves. But the other way we will know him is that he will proclaim a kingdom without a cross, a way to victory without suffering, that things will get better, not worse. Look at, Paul, uh, look at what Paul is saying. Verse 3, Jesus can't come back unless there's a great apostasy. Verse 3 again, he can't come back unless the man of lawlessness is revealed. Things are going to get a whole lot worse before they get better. The man of lawlessness is going to say something very different. Follow me and we'll have victory without cost. But look at verse 5. Paul tells them, he says, you know that we would never say these sorts of things. How could you believe that letter was from me? That's not how I talk. That's the point um, that he wants them to understand about that letter they received. He's telling them, you should never have thought it was from us because we would never say the sorts of things that letter claimed. It was wholly inconsistent with the message we proclaim to you. But the question remains, okay, so... What's keeping all of this from happening? Why hasn't it happened in, in the almost 2,000 years that have passed since Paul penned this letter? We find the, verse, the, answer, the answer in verses 5 through 7, and it's this. God is restraining Satan. And the Bible means that in two different ways. It's very clear that humanity is, is not as sinful as, it, as we would be if God didn't hold us back. And so we often see increase of sin coming with the language that God handed them over to themselves. He, he, he stopped holding them back and let them do 
what they would want they wanted to do. In other words, all things have to all that has to happen for things to get worse is God has to stop restraining us. So why? Why does God restrain sin? Well, he does it so that we don't destroy each other while he's building his church. There is a restraining influence on the world while God is finishing his plan for salvation. He's doing that so that we are still here to be saved by his grace. But there's a second kind of restraining that God is doing, and I think it's what Paul has more in view here. Well, on earth, Jesus said that the time had come to bind Satan so that Jesus could plunder his house. And then Revelation 20 clarifies uh, what is he means by that. That prior to Jesus' first coming, Satan was allowed almost complete free reign over the Gentile nations. Almost every believer prior to the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago was Jewish, with just a few exceptions. And we know most of those exceptions by name. Until that time, the Gentiles were kept in total darkness. They were under deception. And what Jesus was saying was that the time between his first and second coming would be known for Gentiles coming to faith. Satan would be restrained from keeping them as a group deceived. And so Revelation 20 says that at the end, he would be released and allowed once again to deceive people through the work of the Antichrist. And this is what Paul is saying in verses 5 through 12. God is restraining Satan for a time, and when he stops, there will be a strong deception, a strong delusion, and many will fall away. Now, again, we want to be careful. Jesus said that the man of lawlessness would not be able to lead the elect astray. He will not, as he said in John 6, lose one that the Father has given him. What he's talking about here, the great rebellion, the great apostasy, is false converts, those who are in the church but haven't truly surrendered to Jesus Christ. They will be led astray. They will not stand with Jesus through this time. They will prefer false teaching to true teaching, and there will be a lot of them. This is why Peter tells us, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. This is why Peter says, search your heart. Don't take things for granted. Look deep inside. Ask if you've really surrendered. It's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to be a member. You need to completely surrender to Jesus Christ or you will not weather the storm that is coming. You must completely and totally surrender to Jesus Christ or you will not stand when it comes. We also need to be clear that none of this means that there is no satanic influence in the world today. Verse 7 says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And in the Bible, mystery simply means something that is yet to be fully revealed. What will be fully revealed in the man of lawlessness is already at work today seeking to deceive us. So John says, you've heard the Antichrist is coming. Many Antichrists have come. They teach something contrary. Uh, and, and he says, that's how we actually know it's the end times. It's the last hour. 
It's all building towards a final showdown. It's going to get darker. It's going to be darkest just before it gets better. That's the point of knowing these things, to be prepared for when it comes. And so, in fact, I'd like to spend uh, the rest of our time this morning pointing out why these things have been written and why they have been preserved for us. Because that's the great question. Why do we have this passage? I think the first reason is to comfort God's people with hope. Every time Paul talks about Jesus coming back, it's meant to bring comfort. Look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Right? Sounds like it should be scary. But then it says this. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The man of lawlessness may be terrifying. He may wreak havoc. And he may deceive many, but he is no match for our Lord. Our Lord will bring him to nothing. Not with a great battle. It won't be one of those things where, where Jesus is on the ropes and, and just ekes out a victory. All he has to do is open his mouth. And the man of lawlessness is done. The point that Paul is trying to drive home to his readers, including us, is this. Don't let false teachers rob you of the confidence that when your Lord comes, you will be delivered from all misery. Don't, don't let false teachers rob you of that. Comfort one another. Comfort one another with this truth. This is the good news. When, when the fullness of satanic powers are revealed, the fullness of divine power will be revealed. And it is at the moment when things will be the absolute bleakest that hope comes. The second reason he, we have this passage is to keep us from being alarmed by every stray teaching, even those that claim to be authoritative. Look again at verses 2 and 3. People will claim to have visions and prophecy, words from God, or something purportedly written by apostles that claim things wholly inconsistent with the scriptures. And so Paul tells his readers, don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken. Don't be deceived. Ignore them. Judge everything you hear against God's word. If you do that, you won't, be, you won't have your confidence robbed. You won't be alarmed and shaken when false teaching comes along. And that leads us to the final reason why we have this passage. To remind us that the best way to guard your heart and mind against attack, against false teachers, and if you should be alive when he comes, against the man of lawlessness, is to know God's word well. We must know it. We must remind each other of it, and we must teach it to our children. This is what Paul is saying in verse 5, when, that he told them the truth when he was there previously to protect them against false teachings. Teachers will come to tickle your ears. They'll proclaim that they have an easy way, that, that one doesn't have to, uh, they'll, they have a way that doesn't include a great darkness before there's relief. And our passage is clear. Jesus can't return until the apostasy happens, where the man of lawlessness exalts himself and leads many into apostasy. Anything that contradicts that 
contradicts our infallible scriptures. The kingdom is always entered through the cross. And so how, if, if we're to study and know these things, if we're to remind each other of these things and encourage each other of these things, if we're to teach our children of these things, how do we do that? Well, part of it is speaking the truth to each other. We need to be encouragers of each other. But another way we do that is by coming to the Lord's table where we see the bread and wine because we're reminded there that our Lord did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not exalt himself, but humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He laid down his life. And through that, the darkness, both literal and figurative of Friday, gave way to the light of Sunday morning when he rose from the dead. The way to victory is through the cross, and our Lord teaches us that in the Lord's Supper. But, but what about our children? How do we teach them these truths? Parents, it's by reading with them, praying with them, teaching them. But one of the ways we do that is from their earliest days reminding them that we need a Savior. Baptism proclaims to them both their need for salvation and that Jesus was willing to die on the cross to save all who come to faith. In just a few minutes, the crew family is going to come and bring up Jonathan and Jesse and Marion for baptism. And as they do, this sets their bearings for what they need to teach their children. That the way to glory is through the cross, that Jesus is a wonderful Savior who saves all who come to him. And that Jesus does not lose one. That he is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of our trust. And that Jesus Christ is worthy of our absolute loyalty. Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, you know the future as well as you know today. You know that things must get darker before Jesus can come and set all things right. And so we pray. We ask that you would give us strength, discernment, and wisdom so that we are not led astray, so that we are not deceived, so that we don't cling to false promises of hope. May we encourage one another, speak the truth to one another and to our children. Grant us humility to walk the road of service, the road of sacrifice, the road of the cross, we pray. Through Christ our Lord, who has done all these things perfectly for us, and now dwells in us by his Spirit, making us more each day like himself. We pray in his name. Amen.